Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris, I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm glad that you've joined us on this post-Thanksgiving kind of gathering. Uh, the word of the year, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is toxic. And I think that's an appropriate uh, kind of word. It just came out recently because some of us, right, we may describe our family gatherings as toxic, and that may be fresh on your mind right now, uh, that you've sat across the table from that individual that you've tried throughout the year to avoid. And Thanksgiving is one of those rare times in the year where you have to sit across the table from them or sit beside them and hear their political views or their views on whatever it may be that drives you insane. And the entire time you say, do not open your mouth, do not nod, because that only invites more things, you know, the latest conspiracy theories. I mean, we all have those individuals in our family, which is an important thing to realize, because if during Thanksgiving you don't have one of those people at the table that you can think of, it's possible you may be that person <laughs> at the table. This is a helpful thing to know that you may be that one that they are thinking is the crazy one. Um, but it is interesting, right, that when Oxford Dictionary every year may not be familiar with that, but they actually pick a word that they believe captures the, the spirit of the English-speaking world. And this year they chose the word toxic. Um, and it wasn't just because of toxic chemicals. It was because of the environments the conversation, the dialogue. I mean, let's just be real. If you watch the news, it's toxic. It's this constant hum of what's wrong, what's bad, this demonization of people in the world and constant cutting down. If you don't agree with me, you know, just the idea that you would even try to have a conversation with me is offensive. And so toxic. And I've noticed something this year while toxic is being playing out in slow motion. I've noticed simultaneously uh, this kind of uptick with the word love on billboards, on uh, you know, poster boards, and rallies, and uh, protests. It's like love trumps hate, and love wins, and love. You know, it's just this like kind of mantra that in the year of toxicity, love's become a really popular phrase. And I, maybe it's the cynic in me, but I, I look at those signs and. I just kind of say, well, what does that even mean? Like, is, I think that there's supposed to be a little bit more to love than just holding up a sign protesting or holding up a sign and saying, this is what the world needs more of. I mean, yes, the world needs more of love, but what does that actually look like? Which is why, as we were wrapping up this series around Be Rich, we wanted to press into how do you actually practically demonstrate a life of love. Because to the Christian faith, love is not supposed to be words on a poster board. It's meant to be a way of life. Love is supposed to be an action that we do regularly. And last week I talked about what love looked like for us as a church with our love, kind of love does offering in the way that we want to engage in 2019. Our community want to engage them more than we've ever done. We want to love and serve more. But what does it look like for you and I to live this out practically. And to engage that question, I want to look at that exact same question posed to Jesus. Because the idea of what does it actually look like to love well? We all know the word love. We all use the word love. But does our life have a lot of love in it? And this was a question at the core of a man sitting in the crowd who raises his hand and says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, um, about this love thing. And so in 
Luke chapter 10, we see this question posed. Help me understand love, Jesus. Like, what does love look like? I want to know what love is, to put it in that great kind of philosophical phrase with a little bit of a melody to it, right? I want to know what it is. What does it look like? How do I do it well? And Luke captures this moment. If you're new to church, maybe the idea of Luke seems a little random. Um, You may be expecting a guy named Luke walks onto the stage, right? Uh, Luke is uh, one of the most famous first century historians. Luke um, was a medical doctor who turns documentarian. He's essentially an ancient equivalent of Ken Burns, if you're into documentaries, right? Like, he goes and he begins to research who Jesus is. He's curious about this man named Jesus and the message of Jesus. And he's so curious that he doesn't just stop with Jesus. He, he starts to study and document the, the, the Jesus people that happened, what we call the church. And so Luke is one of the most famous historians in the first century. He's very diligent, detailed, very thoughtful, analytical kind of researcher. And he writes for us two letters that we still have today. The first is what we call typically the Gospel of Luke or the Book of Luke. And the second is the Book of Acts or uh, the, the letter of Acts of the Apostles. Those two volumes are the ones that he writes. And, and in Luke 10, almost halfway, almost halfway through the, the first letter, his first kind of documentary on the life of Jesus, he's, he's kind of watched Jesus emerge and He's traced the path of Jesus' popularity, and now Jesus is getting to a point where he's starting to kind of bump up against the religious leaders of the day. He's so influential, people are starting to notice him. He's no longer this regional thing, because when Jesus first started teaching, he was more of a regional rabbi. He was a regional speaker. They knew him in the northern part of the nation, but he he wasn't nationally known yet. And around Luke 10, we start to have this national movement kicking off. Jesus has become famous. His miracles are making a difference. People are learning his name, right? There there wasn't Twitter or Facebook in this day, but people are still people and they love to talk. And so they would say, have you heard about this rabbi named Jesus from the north part, the, you know, the backwoods, the redneck area of our nation? He's, He's doing incredible things. And so naturally, some of the experts, some of the most powerful religious leaders of the day, seek Jesus out. And in Luke 10, verse 25, we find this moment. He says, on one occasion, an expert in the law, right? And so this would be a PhD of the day. This is a brilliant thinker. He stood up to test Jesus. He's like, okay, Jesus, you've become known. I have a question for you. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a loaded question. That's a profoundly deep question that people in the first century were wrestling with. This was a question that was common in theological circles, but not just amongst kind of the rabbis and the scholars. This was a question everyday people asked. They wanted to know, how can I know that I'm right with God? How can I know things are okay between me and God up above? Like, I want to make sure that I have a confidence, that my life is secure, that when I die, I go to heaven, right? I want to know that. And so he raises his hand and he asks Jesus this burning question. What do I need to do to get it? And then Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? You're an expert, right? This is your field. What does it say in the law? And the law is the Old Testament. What we would call the Old Testament today, Jesus is asking him, what's written there? How do you read it? And 
verse 27, he says, he answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. Essentially, love God with everything that you are. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is two central doctrines in the Christian faith, that love God, love others. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus is asking this man to go back to the Old Testament. There's one of the, just as an aside, one of the things that oftentimes as we're kind of navigating our faith, we can tend to say, well, I, I get the New Testament, but the Old Testament doesn't really matter anymore. But how does Jesus engage this man? Jesus quotes directly from the Old Testament. Jesus is affirming the Old Testament. He's, he's not saying this book isn't needed. It's actually central to our faith. He's also making a really critical point. For, I've had conversations with those who are kind of navigating and trying to explore faith, and they're like, look, my hang-up with Christianity is the fact that the Old Testament, God doesn't seem to be a God of love, right? He, he's, he's kind of like Jack Bauer in divine form, right? The people are being conquered. Nations are being defeated. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and he's like, love, 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 love. I like Jesus. I like the New Testament, but the Old Testament, it doesn't have the love stuff. And yet, what does Jesus do? He asks an expert in the law, sum up the Old Testament. What does it say? And how does he sum it up? He says there's two central loves in the Old Testament. Love God and love neighbor. And, and then Jesus responds, all right, great. You've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. And that should have been the end of the conversation, right? Guy had a question. Jesus, what's the answer? Jesus says, what do you think the answer is? Da -da 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 -da. Okay, perfect. You got it. Next question. But that's not what happens, is it? It says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, the expert in the law. He's like, okay, hold, hold up. Loving God, that's a really easy one to fake. I can just say that out loud, and I can kind of pretty much say that I'm doing it even if I'm not. But this loving your neighbor thing's a little trickier. And so this guy needs to justify himself. He's like, okay, well, I, maybe I'm doing that, but it all depends on who my neighbor is. The who before my neighbor, that's, the whole thing rests on whether or not I'm obeying this. And so he says to Jesus, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Right, and that's, a really important question because at the end of the day, love is not a theoretical poster board kind of thing. Love centers on the who. It hinges on the who. The how of love is who do I love? And so Jesus, instead of answering him directly, says in reply, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Jesus launches into a story. Now, we, we aren't in this first century context, so some of this story could easily kind of pass over our head. On top of that, this is, of, of all the stories that Jesus told, this is one of the top three most famous ones. Even if you have never walked into a church before, there's a good chance that you know this story before I start it. The challenge with that oftentimes is when we're familiar, we tend to think we understand it. Right? I, you, you and I are familiar with a lot of things. We're familiar with our car. We're familiar with a toilet. We're familiar with a bicycle. But if I asked you to document how to repair any of those things if it broke, chances are you would have trouble explaining to a six-year-old how a bicycle works or how the toilet physically actually works when there's no power or there's no switches. Right? Like, 
familiarity can breed this sense of understanding when oftentimes we don't. And this is the challenge with the story. So I want you to understand and read this story the way the first century listeners would have heard it. So the, one of the things they would have heard is that this individual is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it uses a very interesting word. He says he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Why down? Because Jerusalem is at the center. It's at the peak of a mountain. Everywhere. To go anywhere from Jerusalem means you go down. Jerusalem to Jericho specifically, because Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. And so this is a 2,500-foot descent in the course of 17 miles. So it's a pretty steep decline to go from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this isn't driving through the Blue Ridge Mountains, right? This isn't the Appalachian Trail. This is first century, so it's dirt, it's rock, it's caves and dark corners. There are not street lights. And so... What Jesus describes here is a common Twitter kind of streaming, trending thing that happens. He gets attacked by robbers, individuals going down by themselves into this dark kind of the crevices, steep decline, oftentimes would be attacked because people would lurk in the corners. They would, they would jump out. They would grab everything they could. They would either kill or leave the person to be killed, and they, they would flee, go back into the caves, run up the mountains, kind of disappear in the valley. And so Jesus is telling a story that many people in the crowd would have been very familiar with. And he says, they strip, they strip him of his clothes, they beat him, and then they went away, leaving him half dead. And so this guy is just a very typical story of what happens when you wander by yourself down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And then in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, which is really important. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side too. Jesus was very interestingly using these two characters. Going down is an important reference point because a priest was kind of the pentacle, was the top of the religious infrastructure of the day. The priest was the one who would walk into the temple, who would do the sacrifices, which was at the core of the religious system of the Jewish people at the time in the temple. Um, a priest's entire life was dictated and determined by religious rules. If you were a priest, you could not touch anything dead, period. The only exemption you had to touch and to interact with anything dead was an immediate family member. And I mean immediate. If you were a priest and you were married and one of your in-laws passed away, psh, I'm going out of town for a week. Wrap this up and I'll come back in. I mean... The, the, the line for a priest was pretty clearly defined. In fact, if he touched someone that was dead, he would, he would be disqualified from working. He would be defiled, which was their religious term for it. So this was a big deal. A priest could not interact with anything that would threaten his holiness or his priestliness. But this is not a priest who's going up to Jerusalem. Going up to Jerusalem is where the temple is. This is a priest who's already done his religious duty. He's left church. He's headed home. So, I mean, he still has some of the religious rules kind of sticking on him, but it's not as pressing as it was if he would, was headed up. But what does he do? He steps over to the other side. And then what happens? A Levite. And a Levite is not a priest, but he's 
if a priest was the, the major leagues, a Levite would be a minor league player. Okay, he's got some skills, he's important, but he's not, he's not getting paid the big bucks. He's not the one that people have trading cards for or wanting the autograph, right? And so the Levite's a minor league player in the religious system of the day, but he's still a minor league player. And so what does the Levite does? The Levite does the exact same thing, and it steps over to the other side. And at this point, the first century listeners would have been hearing what Jesus was saying. They would have been like, oh yeah, Jesus is about to stick it to them. He's speaking against the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day. Jesus is railing against the way that they speak their game, they talk about it, they proclaim it, but then they don't do it, which was a real problem. Look, reality is, is that the devastating and just dark, evil headlines that have been printed in the Globe, that have been printed in the New York Times about religious institutions in America, even recently and regionally, those headlines aren't too far off of what people would have been thinking about religious leaders in the first century because the religious leaders in the first century used their religious power to manipulate and to control and to, to kind of hoard because when you hold the keys to heaven, guess what? Everyone has to come to you to get in. It's a really dark, dark way of having a lot of power. And this is what they did. And quite honestly, there are religious leaders and institutions that still do that today. And they're thinking Jesus is about to kick them in the face with this thing. And so they're leaning in, they're ready, because in their mind, they know the next thing that's going to come out of, of Jesus' mouth is a little everyday kind of common Joe Jewish layman is going to come down the street and he's going to save the day. Like, they knew it. And they're like, man, Jesus is sticking it to that expert in the law. I bet he's so uncomfortable right now. I bet he's like sweating because he knows Jesus is about to rail on him. And then Jesus opens his mouth. And in the original language of Greek that Luke records this document, the first emphatic word Jesus says is the third word that we read in English. And it is Samaritan. In the English, it says, but a Samaritan. But in the original language, Jesus, after he finishes the statement about the Levite going to the other side, then he says, Samaritan. Now, that's a really difficult thing. Remember, this is, we're almost 2,000 years removed from this moment. But we're trying to lean in and listen with the first century ear. And what we have to realize is that this word is, the fact that Jesus said Samaritan, their, their minds are like, they just blew up. You know those moments in like shows where the heads blow up, the memes, right? Like everybody's head just went boom. Like no one, no one. If people were betting money on what Jesus was about to say, no one would have put money on, I bet he'll say Samaritan. Because we don't even have a box for the deep-seated hatred and cultural animosity that Jewish people had against the Samaritans in this time period. There's a lot of historical kind of backdrop to this thing, and we don't have time to press into it, but just know that the, the, the knee jerk when you heard the word Samaritan was to boo and hiss. Like the way I'm trying to train my daughter when she hears the word Yankee just to, to boo, this is, this is what would happen. 
You just want it to kind of well up without even thinking about it. And this is what they would have been like, boo! Samaritan. The Samaritan's probably going to kick the guy, take what he's got left, and then keep going, because that's what Samaritans do. They hated him. In fact, if you really, really wanted to demonize someone in first century Israel, if you really wanted to cut down a Jew in first century Israel like they did for Jesus, so as Jesus is getting more popular, they begin to be more and more threatened because of moments like this. So in John 8, we find this other, other example of them trying to do this to Jesus. So they try to demonize Jesus, and there was two ways you would demonize someone in the first century. One is you would claim they actually had a real demon. Okay, That was an easy one. If you wanted to demonize someone, they had a demon. But the other way that you would demonize someone is you would call them a Samaritan. So what do they say about Jesus in John 8, 48? They say he is demon-possessed and he's a Samaritan. It's like the ultimate cut. It's like you, when you were in elementary school, your mom jokes. That was the way you could like stick it to someone. No, no, no. this is even worse. You call someone a Samaritan, and all of a sudden you're throwing down your tunic and you say, you better hold me back because it's going down. Because I can't, but you can call me demon-possessed any day, but don't you dare call me a Samaritan. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's pressing into deep-seated hatred and racism present in the culture, and he doesn't even stop. He just says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after them, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. It, Jesus keeps with the story. He tells him, hey, look, the Samaritan is the hero of this story. He's the one who steps in and rescues this man and he puts him on his donkey and he carries him into the end. And, and then Jesus says in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of a robber? So Jesus has been asked a question, told a story, and now is asking a question. And it says in verse 37, this gives you a hint at how deep, deeply hated the Samaritans were. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even say the Samaritan was the one who was the neighbor. He says the one who had mercy. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now this is a subtle thing. If you notice, what does Jesus do? He's asked the question, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus says, who is the neighbor to the man? It's a very subtle play. But Jesus is reorienting his question. Jesus is saying, look, you need to worry less about who your neighbor is and more about being a good neighbor, period. You see, when you start trying to decide who's in and who's out of your little circle, then you're no longer in the realm of thinking about love. You're thinking completely opposite of what Jesus is pointing to the Old Testament standard as. He's like, look, your question inherently is wrong. You want to know who's inside my circle that I'm supposed to love. Who do I let into my bubble so that I can love? And instead of saying who's already in and around you today that you can love. It's, very, it's a very nuanced thing that Jesus does. And then Jesus completely sticks it to him by saying, go and do likewise. Which is what I want to say to you and to me. 
as we wrap up this series. Go and do likewise. And in the last 10 minutes, let's press into likewise. Because what Jesus does is he holds up this story of what just played out with the Samaritan. And he says, this man, what he does is what I want you to do. So what does he do? Well, when you slow down and you start to live out the story, one of the things that punched me in the stomach was something that I'm, I have such a tendency to do. What does the first two do? The first, the priest and the Levite, says that they're walking, they see the man, and they step to the other side. So I don't know about you, but if I'm being honest with you, my trouble in loving is that oftentimes I don't even make it to the person. I see them from a distance. I see their struggle from a distance. And I would rather pass by than push in. It's so easy to sidestep. Whether it's physically and I'm downtown and I see a homeless person who I know is going to ask me for money. Or whether it's at work and I see that person and they're struggling with that thing and I know they're going to want to talk about it. Or it's that friend or that neighbor whose phone call is coming through. Or that kid that you teach in their family. It's so easy, before we even get to an opportunity to love, to pass by instead of pushing. And I think the first thing that we have to do is to recognize that for love to play out, we have to push in when we want to pass by. Because that's one of my biggest struggles. It's easy to see and ignore. And then to justify myself, right? That I can find myself being in this expert's shoes, right? I can justify myself. I can say, well, I'm so busy. I've got this other thing to do. I've, I've got this other place to be. I've been loving. This is my job. I do it professionally. I've been loving people all day. I'm ready to go home. I, 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 I'm okay. I'll just kind of pass by this moment. There'll be others. And what we have to realize is that opportunities to love rarely make an appointment. Oftentimes, they're not convenient. They're interruptions. Simply, truly interruptions to a schedule that was already full. None of us wake up in the morning and say, man, this day is wide open for me. I'm just going to find some people to inconveniently take up a lot of my time and my resources. Right? Our biggest struggles is that you get to the end of your week and you need more time. So the idea of even thinking about how to love someone, how to fit someone else into the mix, almost seems impossible. And it's because we're thinking that love has to make an appointment. We're thinking that love has to fall into the convenient category and, in order for us to do it. But what Jesus is doing with this Samaritan story when he says, go and do likewise, is he's saying that love does not pass by, love pushes in. And oftentimes it is inconvenient and oftentimes it's not an appointment. It wasn't on our schedule. It was an interruption. And the second piece is what makes the man press in where the other ones just pass by is that he has empathy. It says he has pity. Kind of a better way, because pity in an American context today, pity um, is demoralizing, right? When you're like, don't you dare pity me. Like it can feel lower, like you're higher than someone. 
But the word pity in its first century context doesn't have that connotation that we have with it. It's more like compassion. And the word compassion in the first century world was an interesting word. It meant to literally be moved inside. The actual, when you keep pressing into the word compassion in the Greek um, word, what you find is it was almost, they, would, they called it the, the bowels because you would fill your stomach. Kind of, you were just so emotionally moved by what you saw. It was empathy. You felt someone's pain. You teared up when you saw them crying. It was, but the challenge when we have our schedules so jam-packed, when our lives are so fast-paced, is it's really hard to be moved when you're always on the move. And we have to be willing to, to press in and to slow down so that we can experience that empathy, so that we can experience that movement inside of us that moves us to make a difference. And as you begin to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to begin to shift the way I think about love and what love requires of me, then what starts to happen is you don't see the one in the way like the priest and Levite. What do they do? They're in, you're in my way. So I'm going to sidestep you and go around to the other side. When you're operating out of a frame of love, you see people on the way, not in the way, which is a really big difference. Seeing people on the way, not in the way, means I have time. I've already given myself permission to notice the sadness, to notice the struggle, to see the single mother, to see the little teenage kid processing through really deep life issues, right? To notice and to see. I mean, I came across a story just recently of the Kansas City SWAT team and how they'd been practicing this idea of getting outside of themselves. And they, they raid a drug house, and it was a no-knock warrant. So, you know, no-knock is you just bust in, right? And it's kind of like television kind of stuff, right? And so they run in. Because this was a, a drug house. There was a couple major kind of drug figures who were living there. Um, there were multiple women, tons of babies. So they bust in in the early morning. And before anybody can grab a gun, the SWAT team has already taken them down. The women are screaming, the babies are crying, and one of the SWAT team members breaks away and is going through the house looking for white powder. And the commander of the SWAT team notices after a few minutes that he's, he hasn't come back, and he walks through the house trying to find him because, you know, there could be something wrong. And what does he find? He finds this SWAT team member, this burly, strong, tough SWAT team member mixing white powder in a baby bottle with a whole row of baby bottles that he'd already mixed before. Why? Because when he broke through the door to issue this no-knock warrant, he noticed that the babies were crying because they'd been woken up and they'd been scared. And what does he do in that moment? He goes and finds the formula and mixes the bottles and then brings them into the living room and begins dispensing them to the moms so that they can quiet and calm their baby. People aren't in the way, they're on the way. This is an opportunity to love. And this idea of learning to see people like that, it shifts the way you do things. And it, and it does something that this Samaritan does, is it pushes you beneath the surface. And you decide with this one on the way that I'm going to sacrifice today. And so what does this guy do? He 
creates bandages. Where does he get the bandage from? This is not a Band-Aid first aid kit rolling in his back pocket. This is his clothing that he's tearing into strips, that he's soaking in oil, that he's wrapping around the wounds. They didn't have an idea of antiseptics and they didn't have an idea of bacteria, but they knew enough to know that if you poured wine on something, it helped the infection from happening because of the alcohol content. And so he pours his wine onto the man's wounds. And then he puts him on his donkey and he walks down the road. He has empathy. His empathy leads him to sacrifice. Now what's crazy is when you play this story out in your head, the priest and Levite should have had empathy. The priest especially. Because when I was reading the story, I was like, well, what if this man going down the road had not been attacked? The priest should have gotten to him and been like, if it hadn't been him, it would have been me. Oh my goodness. There's always opportunity for empathy and to step in. And this Samaritan, he does it. He sacrifices from his own resources. He takes him to the end and then he gives them two denarii, which is the day wages, two day wages of a worker, which means, hey, this guy's not leaving tomorrow night. His check-in time is going to be for a while. And so he presses in and he takes care of this individual. He says, look, put, if, if it goes beyond, if it's too much, put it on my tab. I'll come back and I'll pay it. Like, I'm going to take care of this man. And that love doesn't just skim the surface. It steps in and it goes deep. And it sacrifices. And it even gives up conveniences. Because at the end of the day, love is a choice. And if, just to be real with you, this is something that I could easily fall into the trap of being more priest and Levite than I am Samaritan. That's why I want to give you a prayer to encourage you to pray this. If you're like, okay, you know what, I want to practice love more. Then here's a simple, terrifying prayer. God, put people on my way today that you want me to love. Put people on my way today that you want me to love. Simple and terrifying. Terrifying because it, it will mean that you will have a moment where you will have to make a choice. Do I pass by or do I press in? For me, this is something I intentionally have to practice in my life because honestly, as a pastor, it's easy to justify and easy to write off. I do this professionally. I schedule opportunities to love on people and to have them share their struggles and their challenges and show up in a hospital, right? That's just what I do. And the challenge for me is I can easily drift into priest Levite, justify and walk around. And so I have to intentionally Presence. Just recently, in August, I was traveling a little bit, trying to finish up schoolwork, and my wife had watched a movie. So I'm talking to her on the phone while I'm away, and she's like, hey, I watched this movie, and it was about this woman taking in refugees. And she was like, you, you ever wanted to just bring in a refugee? I, I had that feeling when I was watching the movie, and I'm like, I have never had a feeling <laughs> to bring in a refugee. Ever. Never. Ever. Bring in a refugee. And she was like, well, it was just a really good movie. It just made me want to have a refugee or two over. And I was like, that's why I love you, because we're so not the same, right? I'm an introvert. I don't want anybody in my house. I don't even want people to know where I live. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. So anyways, at the end of the week, I get on the airplane, 
And well, I'll get to the airport and the flights are delayed. There's these horrible storms traveling up the eastern seaboard and I'm flying from, um, uh, I'd stayed in Charleston and an ab above ground, uh, like an above a garage apartment for free at a friend's house. And so I keep getting delayed and the day I'm supposed to land here at two or 12 actually. And then it becomes two and then it becomes, sir, your flight's canceled. We're gonna have to route you through Philly. And now it's six, and now I get to Philly, and now it's delayed again, and now it's, you're going to land around 11 p.m. And so naturally, I'm in a great mood. And uh, I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, I am so ready to be home. My brain is fried. I'm tired. And um, I just want to see the girls. So I get on the bus coming from South Station, uh, going to South Station, and there's this kind of uh, large group of people because Boston has shut down. All the storms have pretty much shut all the flights down. No one's getting out of Logan. And so you've got these people on the bus and they all look stressed, and they all look frantic. And uh, one is this family and they're like, uh, they, they've, they're trying to figure out where to eat and they don't have a clue what they're doing and they're up, you know, you can tell, they're like reading the map, trying to figure out, you know, and every stop is like, is this South Station? And I'm like, no, it's not. Did you not read the sign? Does this say South Station? But you don't say that out loud, you're just thinking it because you just want to wear headphones and not be bothered, right? Because you're tired. And every, is this South Station? No, the sign doesn't say South Station. We're going to South Station. You just, you ride and I'll tell you when to get off. And, um, and so the next stop, and I'm like, no. I'm like, are you looking for something? You know, can I help you? And they're like, well, I'm hungry. Our flights are canceled. We're going to have to spend the night here, and we haven't eaten all day because we've been at Lo Logan hoping to get out, and it's been a disaster at Logan, and da 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 And I was like, okay. Well, don't go to South Station. It's, we're going to get there late. The food's not that good anyway. Um, how, how about stop at the seaport? Um, get off there. There's, here's a bunch of restaurants. I would try them. They taste pretty good. Da, 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 da. And they're like, oh, wow, thanks so much. And then all of a sudden, I've helped this one person. This other person said, hey, are you from around here? I'm trying to get to Providence. How do I do that? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, now I'm concierge? And so I'm like, okay, well, here's what you could do. You could take the bus or you could take a train and, you know, look up the schedules. And I'm like, why aren't you doing this? And, and so I give him and I fix him. And then I put my headphones back on, and I'm like, finally. And then I notice this young lady, and she's like, excuse me, um, can you help me too? I'm trying to get to Florence, South Carolina. Are you kidding me? And she was like, you know, my flights were canceled. I'm, I'm a newly married. I was here for grad school, and... I was supposed to fly back with my, me and my fiance, like, or my, me and my husband, we moved to Denver. We've been living there for a year. I haven't seen my family. And, you know, it's just this ongoing story. And I'd build in a flight where I was going to fly to Charlotte, see them, hang out for a couple days, then fly to Denver. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And she's like, I've been there all day today, and all the hotel rooms are really booked up. I can't afford a hotel room. Like, can you, how would you get to Florence? You just told this guy how to get to Providence. Is there a way I can get to Florence, South Carolina? I'm like, of, of course, I would love to tell you how to get to Florence, South Carolina. And so at that point, I say, there's something called Amtrak. And so i like, where's Amtrak? Follow me. And so I'm wandering through South Station, and I stand in line. I'm trying to catch my train to bring me here. And um, 
we get to the station desk and they're like, uh, the next train, all the trains are full, but the next one's like 10 a.m. tomorrow. And she's like, okay, well, I guess I'll just spend a night here at South Station. And I was like, you're not from around here, are you? You don't want to do that. And so I, I start calling hotels because she can't find a single hotel because all the hotels have been booked up because Logan shut down all day. And so um, I text my wife, and I'm like, you're not going to believe this. You remember you wanted a refugee. I found one. And she's like, quit being funny. It's like 11.30 p.m. She's like, you're ridiculous. I can't wait to see you. And I'm like, no, seriously. I have a refugee. And she was like, Chris, the house is not clean. You can't bring a person over. Do you know if they have a criminal record? And I was like, hey, I got to be real. Do you have any criminal records? It's like, my wife brought up a really good point. Like, you could kill us. And she's like, well, that's a really good point. You could kill me. And I'm like, well, let's just make a deal. You don't kill me or my family, and I won't kill you and yours. Can we make that deal? And she's like, yeah. She's like, I promise you I'm a good person. I'm like, look, just don't kill me or steal anything from me. I don't care. So we call an Uber, and, and my wife is like, Chris, I can't tell if you're joking. Do you really have a refugee? And I'm like, honey, we're in an Uber. We're headed home. Can you set up the refugee camp? And so we get there, and we're all so stressed, and I just have to cut through. I'm like, she's already promised she's not going to kill us, and I promised her we won't kill her. And so I think we're good. And so the next morning, she got up, and, you know, we, like, I hardly, like, slept with one eye open the entire night. <laughs> and my wife gets her and takes her to Target and gets her stuff loaded because she has no food, and um, we get her to the train, and she gets on her way. And nothing about that moment did I enjoy. I did not want anyone coming into my house. It still bothers me. I don't even know the girl's name. It still bothers me that someone knows where I live and can find me. And, and it was one of those moments, if I'm being candid with you, it would have been easy as a pastor to have pushed by that moment, to have been pressed by that moment. And what did it for me, honestly, was just something inside of me said, what if this was Ella, my six-year-old? What would you do? What would you hope someone would do if this was your daughter and she was newly married in a city she'd never been in? And I was like, crap. <laughs> I would hope somebody would love her. And that night, I did the rare, extraordinary thing of pressing in when it would have been so easy to pass by. And at the heart of the Christian faith, is this life and this love of Jesus who could say, go and do likewise, because he did likewise too. And that he didn't walk across the street, he walked down the street carrying a cross. He didn't sacrifice a day wages, he sacrificed his life. So that why? So that we could have the answer to that question that started this whole thing to begin with of Jesus, how do I get eternal life? How do I know 
then I'm okay with God? How can I have purpose? How can my life have meaning? How can I have joy? How can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have this fear that all the good things I do cannot make up for the bad things that I still do? That I recognize, if I'm being honest, Jesus, as I'm raising my hand as the expert in the law, that it doesn't matter how much of the law I know, I still know that I am not enough for the law. So what do I do, Jesus? And Jesus skips that question and goes to another question because Jesus knows He's going to answer that question ultimately a year and a half later. When He carries a cross and when He sacrifices His life so that He could do ultimately what love does, which is leave people better than how you found them. And that because of Jesus, my life was transformed and changed because of Jesus that day, I was willing to say to this person, just stay at our place tonight. Because love, love had demonstrated to me unlimited sacrifice. Love had walked and loved me as if I was the only person in the world and it tore down the dividing wall between God and I. And because of that moment, because of who Jesus is, and because of what He did on a cross, you and I today can take a step, can make a movement where we can no longer live in a place where we're unsure or uncertain, but we can step in and press into knowing that we have confidence, knowing that we're secure, knowing that we are right with God, knowing that not just in this life, but in the next life, there is confidence, that we don't have to hope that there's some religious leader who has a title, who holds the key to, to heaven's door, opens it up and lets us in. We know that because of Jesus and His sacrifice, that He flung open the door wide into heaven and that you and I, because of a choice we can make, can step into that and receive that gift that He gave. Because at the end of the day, we are a people who believe that God stepped into earth. And all next month, we will celebrate that miracle moment of a God in flesh dwelling among us who showed with His life, His actions, and His love what love requires of us. Let's pray.